Beloved in Christ, if you've ever taken a flight to another country, you know that you have to produce identification. You have to prove that you are who you say you are. And our identity is a complex thing. It's not just that stack of cards that you can produce at a moment's notice, your driver's license, your health card, your passport, and so on. Our identity is much more than filling in our first, middle, and last name, our date of birth, and our social insurance number. For we are people with personalities, with relationships and duties and abilities and gifts. We have beliefs and values and things that we hold dear. We easily produce identification when we need to. So what if someone asked us about our identity? Who are we? Really, how would you describe yourself and the things that you believe in? Or how do others know you? If I asked one of your family or friend members, what would they say about you? What if we asked one of your unbelieving co-workers or your neighbors or the student that sits beside you in class? What would they say about who you really are? There's something else, too, more important than our reputation with others and more important than how we view ourselves, and that's how we are known by God. Who does God say we are? In his perfect judgment, what's our true identity? Well, then consider Scripture's answer, summarized in Lord's Day 5 of the Catechism under the theme, Who are we? And we'll see two aspects. The first aspect, we fall with Adam, and secondly, we rise with Christ. First, then, we fall with Adam. When we consider what the Bible says about our identity, we first have to wrap our heads around one major idea, and this idea is fundamental to a lot about what we're going to hear in this sermon. And this is the fact that no one stands on their own. No one is an entirely own person, a complete individual through and through. No man is an island, someone wisely said. We always share in some identity that is much bigger than us. This is a basic biblical idea, and it's about corporate personality. Corporate personality, that's a fancy term, but it means simply this. As persons, we're members of a group. And more specifically, the Bible says that every human being stands behind one man, as our representative, and that's how our basic identity is determined in the sight of God. Now, it's true that we're not used to thinking this way. You see, in our society, we tend to be very much interested in the individual, who a person is in and of himself. We talk about being our own boss. We talk about self-made men and self-made women. There's lots of talk about self-esteem and self-image and being true to self. We say that our personal choices determine who we are, what we'll do, and how successful we're going to be. Now, there's some truth to that, of course. We, We do each have a personal responsibility before God as he calls each person to repentance and faith in him. But the Bible says more. For what sort of people are we each a part of? Among what kind of society do we find ourselves? This is a fundamental question. Let's have an example. Think of being Canadian. For people from Canada, 
There is indeed a kind of corporate personality, a kind of national character. The world knows Canadians as an easygoing and polite people full of thank yous and your welcomes. The world assumes that all Canadians love hockey and use some really strange words, eh? And whether it's accurate or not, that's the Canadian identity as a group, as a nation. That's a corporate personality. Just as Americans are known in a certain way and Dutch people are known in a certain way as well. So, who are we as humans according to the Bible? In Romans, the Holy Spirit points us all the way back to the beginning. In this letter, the Apostle Paul is trying to make a case for Christ. Paul, he never visited the church at Rome, but here he's presenting his gospel message to these believers. He's carefully laying it out piece by piece, and like a good teacher, Paul goes back to the basics. He's already proven to the Romans that everyone is sinful, Gentiles and Jews alike. He's already shown that no sinner can escape God's judgment on his own strength or goodness. And Paul has already announced the good news of deliverance from sin. He did that back in chapter 3. He wrote, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, is revealed. The righteousness of God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So there is salvation available through Jesus Christ. The book of Romans, it travels through a difficult stretch of our sin and misery, just like the catechism starts with our sin and misery, towards this beautiful scenery of our deliverance. But here Paul wants to explain this a little bit more. How is this salvation actually possible? How do we enter into this right relationship with the Creator? Yes, on the plainest level, down to the very foundation of it, What is salvation actually all about? And so here in chapter 5, Paul says that our salvation is all about a change in identity. This is the main point. Salvation involves our status and identity being radically transformed. And to show this, Paul goes back to who we would be apart from Jesus Christ. He points us back to that original tragedy of the fall into sin. He spares us the gory details and he gets right to the heart of what happened. Verse 12, we read it. Through one man, sin entered the world. By one man's choice, one man's irresponsibility and rebellion, sin entered the world. Sin and all that comes with it. Sin entered the world, and verse 12 continues, and death through sin. That was the original punishment that was announced by God. Death. Speaking of that tree in the middle of the garden, he said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, because of sin, there is death. Because of sin, there is cancer. Because of sin, There is diabetes, and there are heart attacks, and there are car accidents, and there are plane crashes. Because of sin, we must sometimes stand at the graveside of people we have loved, and we grieve the brokenness of life. Yet God says the effect of sin, it's not witnessed simply in the end of our physical existence. No, the true penalty for sin is death in every way, physically and spiritually. 
total death is our separation from the God of life. This is what the Catechism calls temporal and eternal punishment or the burden of God's eternal wrath. Sin entered the world and at the same time death entered and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice what Paul did here. Paul started the verse talking about just one man, Adam, who sinned long ago. But here by the end of the verse, notice he's talking about everyone sinning, everyone dying, everyone being under God's judgment. There's an inseparable connection between what Adam did and who we are today. Death spread to all because all sinned. We share in it. It's on us too. Okay, so now theologians have debated for a long time what this exact connection is. How does Adam's fall into sin affect us day to day? Does it mean that we imitate what Adam did? That we just copy his rebellious choice? Like him, we see the forbidden fruit that is offered in the world around us, things we like, things that we think will give us pleasure. And just like Adam, we reach out the hand and we take what hasn't been given to us? Or does the connection mean that we've inherited sin from our first father, like it's some kind of genetic disease, kind of like when mom or dad have diabetes, their children are more likely to have it too? Or does Paul mean we actually share in Adam's guilt for that original transgression? Does he mean that when Adam sinned, we sinned with him? That when he failed, we all failed with him? So this last view might be the most difficult to accept. This view might be the one that you're going to protest. That's not fair. For God to condemn me simply because of a sin Adam committed so long ago, I wasn't there, was I? That sounds like identity theft. Like he's hijacked our life and we had no say in the matter. But Paul is not talking about the kind of people we're a part of. Either our identity is defined and wrapped up in Adam, or it's become defined and wrapped up in someone else. And so lest we have any doubt about it, our unity with Adam is put explicitly in verse 18. Have a look. Paul writes, Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. That's why the form for baptism that we use says, We and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath. Without doing anything good or bad, even a little infant is under God's judgment, born a child of Adam. It was once put into a little rhyme for children, and it's one that we heard a few weeks ago so that they could easily remember this basic truth. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. You're not going to find this in Mother Goose, but that's a rhyme that's very true. This is who we are. Of course, we've added to that original sin. And you could say that we do imitate what Adam did when we choose what is right for ourselves and when we ignore God's commands and warnings. The Catechism says we daily increase our debt. Yet all of it stems from that one root way down below, underneath our family tree. And that's not meant as an excuse, something that we can blame in order to get away with what we've done wrong. Yet knowing about our identity can help us 
as Christians. A little bit of personal awareness, some self-evaluation. It's a very necessary thing. It's a very useful thing to do in our walk with the Lord. Let's explain. Beloved, each day we should understand the true character of our hearts, what we're capable of. When we look in the mirror in the morning, we will admit that we're not innocent. We should confess that we're not so great after all. We should acknowledge that we can't be do-it-yourselfers and get to heaven based on the length of our prayers or on the number of our good deeds. Rather, we should recognize that we're naturally going to choose the wrong path. Every day we should admit that we all have this basic willingness to be deceived by the devil. We should see that generally we put ourselves first and God and everybody else last. Apart from God's help, that's who we are. And as I said, this knowledge of our identity, it might be bleak, but it can help us. Because we should know not ever to stand near sin. Because we should know not to ever stand near any sin. We should know not to put ourselves in places where evil is thriving. Because with our inherent weakness, we're probably going to fall for it. We should know not to depend on ourselves or let ourselves become proud because then we'll certainly fail. Sometimes, when we're being tempted to sin, we start hearing voices in our minds that rationalize our sin, explain why it's allowed. But if we know our true human nature, if we remember that we are sons and daughters of Adam, we should also know not to listen to those voices because we're only going to fool ourselves. No, if we really know who we are in Adam, our father, if we understand it and face up to it, then we'll admit that we need help. We'll confess our shortcomings and we'll cry out for salvation through our only mediator and savior, as question and answer 15 put it. And so this is where we see we rise with Christ. Paul doesn't want to leave us hanging. He, doesn't, he tells us about our sins, not to sink us into depression, but so that we cherish our salvation more joyfully. He's not explaining our unity with Adam so we go home feeling worthless. No, Paul wants to tell us about the incredible change in who we are. It's a complete makeover. It's not just on the surface, but God has changed us deep down to soul and spirit. The end of Romans 5 verse 14 hints at where this is headed. There Paul writes that Adam is a type, by that he means a pattern, of the one to come. He's saying that while Adam might have put all of us on the wrong track, there's also someone who can reroute this train. There's someone who can do just the same kind of image transformation that Adam did. Another who can shape our very identity, but this time for blessing and not for curse. So who could it be? We know that he'd have to be one who is true and righteous man so that he can satisfy God's justice against human sin. What's more, we know he'd have to be one who is at the same time true God so he can bear the full burden of God's wrath, man and God. Now that's a tall order. That's a person we could never find on our own. 
But thankfully, there's no surprise about the identity of our Savior. Paul told us already back in Romans 1. The Catechism teaches us who that is back in Lord's Day 1. And now it gets worked out in verse 15. Right there, Paul writes, For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. There's that powerful comparison. Did you see it? Did you catch it? In this corner, one man. In the other corner, another man. It's Adam. It's Christ. Adam brought us sin. Adam brought us death. Adam introduced condemnation. But Jesus Christ, he stood up for us. He brought us grace. He brought us life. He accomplished our salvation. Two men standing at the head of all humanity, two captains and representatives of all, but two vastly different people, greatly different lives, totally different results for the world, totally different results for you. Let's think about Adam. He had a job to do in the Garden of Eden. In a word, Adam's job was obedience. He had to listen to God's command, the big commands. Multiply, fill, subdue, rule. And he had to listen to all the other commands of God, like keeping his hands off that one tree in the middle of the garden. But he didn't do it. Under test conditions, Adam failed miserably. And yes, beloved, we failed right along with him. We shared in his fall. Now how about Christ? Christ, too, he had a job to do on this earth. In a word, the job was the same as Adam's. Obedience. He had to obey the commands of God. Love God, love his neighbor. He had to come to earth and do exactly what God ordered. To open the kingdom of heaven. To preach the glad tidings to the poor. And yes, to be humiliated. To suffer. To die. And he did it. He did it perfectly. Facing a lifelong test of obedience, our Savior scored 100%. And at the end of his life, hanging on the cross, he could say, it is finished. Because it was. Jesus left nothing undone. So here's that comparison again. Chapter 5, verse 18. As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. One man's righteous act. That's how Paul describes the entire life of Jesus. It was one perfect display of faithfulness to the Father's will, unrelenting, unchanging obedience. Redemption comes through this righteousness of Christ. It's what makes all the difference in our lives. Christ makes all the difference when we're carrying a burden of guilt for all the things we've ever done. Christ makes all the difference when we're filled with sadness at the death of a loved one. Christ makes all the difference when we're unsure of our purpose or place in life. Christ makes all the difference when we're anxious about many things. Christ makes all the difference when we're lonely. 
Christ makes all the difference when we're depressed and can't see our way through. Christ makes all the difference. Because now, in Him, we have a new promise. Now, in Him, we have peace, even a new life. Formerly condemned in Adam, previously under the sentence of death, now, how much more does God's grace abound to many? You see, God sees us as a different kind of people. He no longer sees us united with Adam, with all the misery that identity entails. God sees us united with Christ. That's our new character. That's our new status. We are one with Jesus Christ. It means that whatever Christ accomplished, whatever Christ achieved, God considers that we did too. Christ was obedient. God says we are obedient too. Christ was righteous. God says we are righteous too. Christ suffered eternal condemnation. God considers that we suffered too. We owed him an eternal life, eternal death for all our sins and shortcomings, but now that death has already taken place. It took place on the cross. It's this blessed reality that our baptism points to. Paul asks in chapter 6, we heard it in the sermon earlier today, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptism is the precious mark that we're united with Christ, united to him and to all the glory and blessing that he stands for. And now this is the identity we may have even from day one of our lives. The form for baptism says, just as children share without their knowledge in their condemnation of Adam, so are they, without their knowledge, received into grace in Christ. That's the new character of our children. Even before they've done much of anything at all in the world, they are received into grace in Christ. Children, God has promised you a new identity. God has placed his name upon you and upon us all in his grace God says, no longer are you simply a child of Adam. No longer do you need to stand behind him as your representative and captain. For now, you're a child of God and a part of the people of Christ. This is worth so much more than any human position or glory. You see, in this world, we oftentimes seek a good reputation with others and we worry constantly about what people think about us. We try to shape and create an identity for ourselves. I'd like to be known for excellent work or good education or amazing talent. We might find meaning through our family, our interests and hobbies, or the strength of our character. Along the way, we might try to develop better self-esteem in ourselves or in our children. But in the big picture, all these things matter very little. Why? How does God look at you, beloved? Does God see you as united to his son? We once received the promise of this grace, but have we taken hold of this? Have we been united to Christ by a true and living faith? Is this who you are? Forgiven? Is this who you are set apart? Is this who you are as we heard last week again and again? loved? Is this who you are, righteous? This is proper self-image. 
looking at yourself and seeing only what God has done in you and for you. And this identity, it carries over into all areas of our lives. Paul says if we're united to Christ, we're dead to sin. We're done with that way of living. After all, our sins, they're nailed to the cross and our transgression was dealt with completely. Now it's time for a new beginning. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, Paul writes, but alive to God in Christ. There's no reason for us to go back to Adam and sons, the family business of sinning and dying. Paul exhorts us in verse 13, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. That's not why we're here. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. He's calling us, he's given us a new calling and purpose, assigned a new identity for us to embrace with heart, soul, mind, and strength. What it means is that being a follower of Christ, that cannot be a secret identity. It can't be something you keep from the view of others or something you won't talk about in public. It's who you are. It's who we are. Christ has something to say about everything we do because he wants us to serve him in everything. He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And so be glad to do it. Be glad because you're adopted by God the Father. Be glad because you're washed by the God the Son. And be glad because you're filled with God the Spirit. By his grace, this is who you are. And more and more, let it be who you are becoming. Amen.